Now, the Apostle Paul warned about this to the Colossian church in chapter 2, uh, 20 to 23. Listen to what he wrote to them. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What Paul is saying is, is that all of these outward things don't change the heart. Only the grace of God does that. Now, legalists may appear to be righteous and spiritual, but legalism ultimately fails to accomplish God's purpose because it's an outward performance instead of an inward change. And Paul laid it very straight for us when he wrote to the Galatian church in chapter 1, 6 to 9. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let it be accursed, anathema. As we have said before, as I now say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. There's no other gospel. There is the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is apprehended and applied to the individual life by faith in what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. End of story. It's that easy, and it's that hard. Now, I have, over the years, had Christians come up to me around Easter time and ask if our church is going to celebrate Now, you know what Lent is. 40 days prior to Easter, it's like, what are you going to give up for God? Now, I'm only speaking for myself, but I think Lent is an accursed invention of man to celebrate self-goodness. The only thing that you and I will ever give up is our sin-sick heart that needed to be saved by the grace of God. Now, if you want to give something up, feel free to do it any time in your life. You don't have to wait for Lent. The scriptural basis to walk with God is found in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The second thing that they had to deal with with this <clears throat> church that happened is the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles went 180 degrees from the Judaizers. 
the Judaizer says, let's keep all of these laws. The Gentiles were saying, hey, I'm under grace. I have license to sin. But grace gave them a carte blanche, uh, go free card to just go and live whatever way you want it because, hey, after all, under grace. So the apostles had to teach that true saving grace does not promote sin, but rather <laughs> that grace keeps us from desiring and wanting to sin. That's how true grace works. So Paul had to lay out for these Gentile believers what true saving grace looks like. And he did that in the book of Romans, essentially. Chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in sin or live in it? Paul is saying if you've truly taken of the grace of God, you don't have a desire to sin and then use the excuse, well, it just magnifies the grace of God. That's not what grace does. True saving grace sets us apart to God and apart from sin. Down in the same chapter, verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, and the end, everlasting life. You see, that's how grace works. It brings fruit unto holiness, everlasting life. And if you read all of chapter 6, Paul makes the case that the Holy Spirit does not dwell in us to live under sin because that is the old nature. He has given us a new nature that is empowered and controlled by the Holy Spirit now desires to live for the glory of God and not to gratify our sinful desires. Amen? So when somebody says, uh, I can live any way I want because I've been saved by the grace of God, that's not true saving grace. True saving grace sets us apart from sin, doesn't give us license to sin. And these are two things that the apostles had to continually address in these 3,000 new converts. So when new people come into your church, there is both joy and there are challenges. And the joy is, praise the Lord, God is adding onto his church. The challenge is, is that none of us are perfect and have arrived, and we must be instructed by the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in accordance with his will. Amen? We have these 3,000 souls that have been added to the church. What were the foundations that were laid for the early church? The first thing is in verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. You know, baptism is not for the super spiritual. Baptism is for every saved, born again believer and follower in the Lord Jesus Christ. Water baptism is not for ducks, it is for believers. Now, before we are baptized, we come to believe that we are sinners and that we are in need of salvation. 
That's what the Bible teaches. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not one person on the world in the world that has not sinned. Is, amen? We also must believe Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins in full. He was buried. He was resurrected. And that we know that he will come a second time to judge the living and dead. When we turn to Jesus asking him to forgive our sin and be the Lord and Savior of our lives, we are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And our eternal salvation is guaranteed and we begin now the process of sanctification. What's sanctification? Sanctification is that daily thing we call in life of being set aside from the world, the flesh, and the temptation of the devil to become more and more like Jesus. And it's a lifelong process. A lot of times we do and say things that are sinful. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It just simply means you have some repenting to do. But this is part of the process that God uses to set us aside to himself. It's called sanctification. Has nothing to do with our eternal salvation. We begin to die to ourselves. We begin to live for Christ. And so when we get baptized in water, water is a beautiful picture. Water baptism is a beautiful picture of what the Lord has done for us. We are completely immersed in water, which symbolizes with our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are baptized into his death on the cross, and we are no longer slaves to sin. And we are raised out of the water, symbolically speaking, that we are now a new creation in Christ. And it is a testimony to the world that we are followers of Jesus Christ. It is a outward testimony of an inward work. Water baptism is not like a wand that you get waved over you and something mysterious happens. It is simply a testimony to the world and we are all called to be testimonies and to give witness. So all of that to say this, if you have never been baptized in water and you are truly a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have repented of your sin, you have believed on the Lord with all of your heart, the Bible commands that you should be baptized in water as a testimony and as obedient to the scriptures and to what Jesus Christ has told us. It is not an option, it is a command. And so if you haven't been baptized in water, let me be the first to dunk you. And I want you to be assured I've only lost five so far. So there's a good chance you might come up. No, come and see me because the weather's getting warm. We can go down to the lake. You can invite your friends, your family, and you can make a public testimony that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you haven't, this was one of the first foundations in the early church. They believed and they were baptized. All right, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Notice carefully that this verse 
literally says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine or to their teaching. And the, uh, the second foundation of the first church is teaching. They showed the genuineness of their faith by continuing in the doctrine of the apostles. And despite the hate, the ridicule, and the persecution that they suffered, they remained faithful to the word of God, which is a mark of genuine salvation. Jesus said to his disciples in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. He said, the true branch will abide in the vine, John 15. In the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, it says, the good seed will not wither and die under persecution, but it will find good soil, it will root, and it will produce a crop 60, 100 fold. It's very important term continually devoting because it governs the other characteristics of the church where the spirit reigns. There were 3,000 baby Christians who were continually devoting themselves to God's word as it came from the apostles. That the church should be composed of saved individuals seems absolutely a non-brainer, non-starter for us. Sadly, today, many churches today are made up of people who are sitting in the pews who are largely unsaved. They even try to design churches today where non-Christians can feel comfortable. As I've often said to you, my ministry is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. This can't be the goal of a church, especially a church that is devoted to the Word of God, because the Word of God has a lot of things to say that make people uncomfortable. Now, God is not uncomfortable. God is very comfortable when you agree with Him. But when you don't agree with Him, it can be rather disconcerting. Now, I believe that the goal of any true church is to teach the Bible as the Bible is written. And the goal for interpreting the Bible is if the literal sense makes plain sense, seek no other sense lest you get nonsense. Such a church will be unpopular with sinners, but should a sinner humble themselves and listen to the Holy Spirit speak to their heart, they will be drawn to the Savior. In this first fellowship, I would say this, all the professors of the Word of God were possessors. These new Christians, were hungry for God's Word. And as a Christian, every genuine born-again believer who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, your life should be marked by hunger for the Word of God. The two go together. There is no separation. 
So I'm going to ask you a very simple question today. Are you saved? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God and repented of your sin? Have you accepted what Christ has done have you come to the place in your own mind that you are convicted that you are lost and going to hell and apart from Christ's saving work there is no hope for you because if you're here and you go you know what I kind of like the rocking worship team I like this I like that I like some of the programs I'm glad that you like that but that's not the issue is it the issue of why we're all here and the issue why I'm here is because I'm preaching for souls. If I did not give you a clear presentation of the gospel before you left this, this building, I have been remiss and I have not fulfilled my duties as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, are you saved? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in your in Christ plus nothing? And when you have trusted Christ and you are saved and the Spirit of God dwells in you, you have a hunger for the Word of God. The second thing, well, I should just say one thing before the second thing. You know, when the Lord rose before he ascended, he did an amazing thing for the disciples. Twenty-four. You know what he did? He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And you can already see this in Peter's first sermon. He gets up without notes, and he begins to proclaim what they're seeing and hearing is a work of God, and he quotes uh, Joel, he quotes Psalms, and he says, this is that which was spoken of in the scriptures. Peter is already exemplifying how he was filled with the Spirit and the Word of God, and how he was filled with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to know more and more and more of God. I want to have my life filled more and more and more with God. I want, to, I want to have less of me and more of him. Now, a lot of times when I talk to people about being filled with the Spirit, it's a concept, if you think about it, that seems rather mystical. What do you mean be filled with the Spirit? Like, do I kind of get, like, uh, some type of levitation going on? Do I have to have a posture? It's none of those things. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Word of God. And the more the Word gets in you, you will be surprised at how you will be so sensitive to the Holy Spirit, empowering you. There's no great mystical secret about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Get into the Word of God. Let that Word permeate you, and you will see the Holy Spirit filling you up. Got it? And I'll, I'll tell you, pray for me. I need a lot of help. I love 
My TV is on. Hey, honey, look at this. There's competitive knitting. I need help. Time to read the word. Are you kidding? He's going to bait his hook. <laughs> but I am making a, a concentrated effort to read the word of God every day and to enjoy it and to get myself filled with it. All right, the second thing as we move on, well, that's actually the baptism, the word fellowship, verse 42. They were in fellowship. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. The Greek word for fellowship is what? A very good. You get a free trip to Hawaii uh, at the expense of who knows. Koinonia. And you know, this first occurrence of the word in the New Testament, it means commonness or commonality. And it was a common word of the day, the street language people. Time this word is used in the New Testament, it denotes kind of sharing, either sharing something with someone or sharing in something with someone uh, of what they might be experiencing, sharing in something that someone might be experiencing. Here in Acts, the emphasis of the word is on contributing or giving because the foundation of the early Christian fellowship was giving. Look at verses 44 and 45. And now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They were a koinonia church. They were sharing and giving together. So when we talk about fellowship in the church, we are talking about coming together to contribute or give. We are not talking about coming together with an attitude of what I can get, but rather what can I contribute. And that's what fellowship is all about. You know, one of the beautiful things about having coffee together is that we can contribute to one another's lives by talking to one another, taking time to pray with one another, finding out needs about people, and it's amazing how much giving and contributing happens in those 10 and 15 minutes. Now, fellowship costs the church. In contrast, use of the word fellowship today because fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling of oneness it's not about coffees and cookies coffees coffee and cookies though of course that would be included it does not take place simply because we are in the fellowship happens when we are truly contributing and giving to one another because true fellowship 
so many people know the joys of Christian fellowship because when they come to church, they pick a church simply on the basis of whether they can stay incognito. Why do you go to that church? Well, it's a big church. I can slip in. I can slip out. I don't have to talk to anybody. Nobody talks to me. I like it. That's not church. That's not fellowship. Why did you pick that church? No demands. It's like decaf coffee. It doesn't keep me up at night. I like it. See, that's not what the Bible says was the foundation of the first church. It was fellowship. It was contributing and giving to another. The second, or the fourth thing was worship. And their worship consisted of two things. The breaking of bread and prayer. How do we look at worship today? Well, uh, we put a band together and then we pick a bunch of songs and man, we get a guitarist up there that can shred because we want Jesus to be seen in That's not what worship is. Worship consisted of the breaking of bread and prayer. They constantly remembered what the Lord had done for them by celebrating communion when they came together and they prayed together. Worship is not a feeling, though feelings can be involved. The duty of worship is not optional is a command of our Lord Jesus Christ that when we come together in worship that we break bread together and we pray together. Now in 1 Corinthians 11, communion was when all believers come together to meet at the common ground at the foot of the cross. That's the beauty of the cross. When we come to the cross, whether you're famous or whether you're not, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter where you are from in the world. We come to the cross the same way with the same need to the same Lord who gives us the same grace. We come to the foot of cross because we are all sinners saved by the same grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And communion acknowledges the wondrous work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. It centers on Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his promise to return in time. Communion also calls for the examination and the purging of sin from our lives and thus purifying the church. Nothing is more vital to the church's ongoing regular confrontation of sin in the lives of its people than the thoughtful expression of devotion of what we do Jesus and his death on the cross. Notice the fruit that in verses 43 to 46. Fear came upon every soul. I often think about that verse. Then fear came upon every soul. There was 
a godly awe among the people that followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed had all common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And the last foundation that the early church had was evangelism, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's what happens in the church where the Spirit of God reigns. There is a radical, wonderful reorientation of our essential relationship to the Lord and one another. Unified, joyful, spirit-filled awe. It was a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel. And evangelism flowed from the lives of a healthy church because they could see in the people the living God. I don't know what's happened to you. I don't know what you got, but I want it. That was the testimony of how I got saved. I hung out with a bunch of guys and a bunch of friends that did everything that you would never want your kids to do. And one day, one of my best friends came into a party lit up like a Christmas tree. I said, I don't know where you've been, I don't know what you've been doing, but whatever you got, I need it and I want it. And he shared Jesus with me. This brief glimpse of the first foundations of the first fellowship just gives us valuable insight to what makes a healthy, growing church worthy of its name. The proper devotion to the duties of the Spirit produces the proper character, which in turn produces a powerful and saving impact on people. Where the Spirit reigns, come on up, Daniel, Tiana. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to the Word, teaching. Where the Spirit reigns, Believers relate to each other. Yeah, fellowship. Where the Spirit reigns, people relate to God. Worship. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to the world. Evangelism. Abiding in wonderful truth for letting the Holy Spirit work in us and out of us are first foundations of the first church. So let's commit ourselves to those simple things as we go forward. Let's pray. Lord, thank you today for your word. I just pray, oh God, that if there is anyone here today that has not given their life to you as their Lord and their Savior, I ask right now that you simply bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus Christ, I am a sinner. There is nothing that can save me apart from what you have done on the cross. There are no good works. There are not enough good works except the blood of Jesus that was shed for me on the cross. This day, by faith, I ask Christ into my life 
to be my Lord and to be my Savior, to forgive me of all of my sin and to cleanse me and wash me. And now, Holy Spirit, come and live in my life. And by your grace, I will live for you and follow you day by day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing today this amazing hymn, and then we'll dismiss. And if you prayed that prayer today, if you've come with someone, you need to tell them that you committed your life to Christ. And if you're just here by yourself, then you come and tell me, because I would love to pray with you before you go. So let's uh, sing, and then we'll be on our way. of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean